0: We're going to be in Mark 6 as we continue our series through the gospel of Mark. And I want to try my best to frame up our time together for five whole chapters now. We've been watching Jesus do ministry, sometimes in the most smallest and intimate ways like uh, quietly and, and privately healing Peter's mother-in-law from a, a, a fever she had in bed. And sometimes to the most audacious and, and and captivating ways like friends destroying a roof so that they can bring their paralyzed friend down into the roof because they couldn't get into the house because the whole town had gathered to this one little home to hear Jesus teach. We've seen from the very beginning of our journey through Mark a big picture that our big brother Mark has been painting for us of what it looks like when the kingdom of God collides with earth. And we're seeing again from the beginning since the opening words that what we have is good news of great scandal. Jesus' ministry was hardly beautiful in the sense That he was received well everywhere that he went. And our text this morning, the portion that the Lord has set aside for us to study together, is no different. It's a sort of sad story that contains for us a familiar warning. That familiarity does not mean fellowship. That proximity does not mean presence. That near Jesus does not mean that Jesus is dear to you. In fact, a lot of our text that we'll read is is similar to us. All throughout Mark's gospel, there has been an undertone, a underscore, that being close to Jesus doesn't actually mean with Jesus. And family, before we read our text, before we contemplate really its simplicity, I believe that there is a question that we all Must ask with a sense of urgency, no matter your age in this room. There is a question we all must ask right here in the front end. And the question is, who do you think Jesus is? Who do you think Jesus is? You can say that's a ridiculous question. We've been together for nine months. I think I know who Jesus is by now. Now. But family, the truth is we all carry a very specific view of Jesus with us. Whether or not you are in the faith, whether you believe or you don't believe, whether you've been wrestling with your faith or you're a skeptic about the faith, whether you are a child or an adult, you have a very particular view of Jesus. Now, the question for the unbeliever, for the skeptic, the answer to that question is actually a doorway into a home of safety and grace and comfort. But for the believer on the other side of salvation, the answer to this question acts as a diagnostic into whether or not we are beholding the real Jesus. Whether our view of him has become distorted whether the flame of our fervor for his mission is still kindled within us. This is what Mark would have us contemplate for the next few weeks. Who is Jesus to me? Who do I think Jesus is? And so I've titled our time this morning under a rejected king. As we see our Lord be rejected by some people very familiar to him. And therein lies many questions for us to consider as we hear their reasons for rejection. But family, also note this. This text is extremely relevant for us today. This text is a window into a much larger scheme we are up against living in the world that we live in today. Do not divorce the Nazarene response to both your heart's disposition to who Jesus is and the world's disposition to who Jesus is. Both outside this building and inside this room right now need to ask this question. So would you stand now for the reading of God's word and then would you join me in prayer as I pray for you and you pray for me as together we hear from the Lord this morning. Mark chapter six, starting in verse one, and it reads like this. He went away from there. That's Jesus. He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. This is God's word. Would you join me in prayer? Oh God, give us ears to hear your word this morning. Grant us softened hearts to receive your truth and open minds to contemplate your grace. Lord, would you gift me with clarity of speech and thought as the preacher? Would you gift the congregation with attentiveness and grace for my errors in Christ Jesus' name? Amen. You may be seated. During the 1950s, which was a very difficult time for much of America. The great Muhammad Ali was growing up in a poor neighborhood in a very segregated Louisville, Kentucky. But the great one wasn't always called the great one. He, now, Cassius, I should say at this time in our little story here, uh, Cassius Clay, right, was a very skilled boxer, very, very skilled boxer, even as an amateur, but he wasn't widely accepted in the city that he grew up in. Really, he was only popular among the black neighborhoods he kind of came up in. And as Cassius grew up, not just moving from a respectable boxer, like a, like a good homegrown boxer, but to an actual contender, a professional for the heavyweight title. Much of the media gave him another name. They called him the Louisville Lip. And that wasn't a compliment. <laughs> um. Much of America and boxing fans at the time did not see Ali as great as he was. He was polarizing. We tend to have revisionist history in America, right? We tend to remember our idols differently. Jordan wasn't always beloved. Tyson wasn't always beloved. Tom Brady wasn't always beloved. The same goes for Ali. Although Ali was becoming a household name in not just the sport of boxing, but in the larger scope of American culture, the majority of his own city did not like him. Now, we cannot and we should not ignore that race played a factor in this as well. You got to remember, 1950s, 1960s, it's worse than it was today in some ways. But the color of his skin was not the only thing that made him polarizing. It was that Ali was a tremendous trash talker. He was incredibly gifted at talking garbage. I love it. I watch Ali interviews uh, throughout the sermon prep. I was just (laughs) on a YouTube binge of just Ali interviews. And I was just captivated that he was just so good at being bad (laughs) But that, but that's what that's what the draw was. That's what the draw was. People were packing out these arenas to see this black man talk. All this trash get stuffed. That was the draw, and he knew that, so he played it up. He, he became this persona. He kind of had to do it to survive in that climate. But here's how it happened. Right? This is an amazing story. He came into that persona. He wasn't always that way. He came into that persona. Because even though he was a contender for the heavyweight championship in boxing, he still wasn't getting the recognition he deserved. He wasn't selling out venues. He wasn't, it just wasn't happening. He was a name, he wasn't a name. You see what I'm saying? Now, he's watching professional wrestling and he sees this wrestler named Gorgeous George. Any of y'all know Gorgeous George? Gorgeous George. Okay, so in, the, in professional wrestling, there's like good guys and bad guys. They're actors, but they play a role, right? Gorgeous George was a heel or a villain, right? He was very cocky. He would come in and he would have like a uh, like a like a like a, uh, uh, a posse around him, and they would spray hairspray on him. He had, I mean, blue eyes, blonde hair had the whole do and they would just spray hairspray all over him. And he would get up there, talk about how pretty he was and how nobody was going to beat him. how He was too good looking and people ate it up. And Ali saw this. Ali saw that the villain was so cocky. But the one thing he saw more than that was that Gorgeous George sold out every wrestling event. Anytime Gorgeous George was on the ticket, it was a sold out event. So Ali spends five minutes backstage with him and thus the Louisville lip is born. All right? But that was the thing. That was the thing about Muhammad Ali. He was either the Louisville lip or the great one. There was no indifference to him among America, among boxing fans. There was no indifference. He was either one or the other. But here's the interesting thing. If you go to Louisville today, There is so much praise and recognition for the great one. Buildings, streets, schools, gyms, just about everything is paying homage to the champ. But the point in sharing this with you this morning is that it wasn't always the case. It wasn't always the case. For some people who were alive for Ali's career, it's a surprise to them. That Louisville is so happy to claim him later on in his life. Our text this morning carries a similar thread. And this thread is a thread Mark has weaved into the writing at different points throughout the six chapters we've just read. Every so often in our study, we've had to stop and contemplate who Jesus really is in light of the reception he's received. In chapter 2, when Jesus heals the paralytic, the example I just gave before, the Pharisees ask, who is this man that he has the power and the authority to forgive sins? It's also in chapter 2 that we ask, who is this man that he can do work on the Sabbath? In chapter 3, we saw that Jesus is being accused of an agent of Satan. We see his family believe that he's literally crazy, mentally unstable we ask the question, who is Jesus to us? Is he crazy or is he king? The answer, family, to the question that we're asking, even in the beginning of our time in this study, I'll give you the answer, and that is that Jesus is God. That's it. That's the sermon. Jesus is God. But the reality is that not all of us have truly grasped This truth, some of us have a cognitive understanding that Jesus is God. Some of us have a verbal understanding that Jesus is God. Some of us have a far too emotional understanding that Jesus is God. But what we need, church, what this building, this place, us as a people need, what our city needs, what our county needs, what our country needs, what the world needs is a supernatural understanding that Jesus is God. You don't have to say amen, I know it's true. Once we believe that, once we surrender ourselves to its implications, that this human man, Jesus of Nazareth, actually walked this earth, was the actual son of God, everything in our life changes. Our world is not allowed to be the same. Our text has at the heart of it though, Not belief that Jesus is God. Unbelief. The who of the story and the setting it takes place in. Mark and the other gospel writers find it incredibly important for us to know. Look at verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown And his disciples followed him. Luke puts it this way in case there's any doubt of where exactly he went. Luke chapter 4 verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Jesus makes this journey with his disciples from Capernaum to Nazareth is some uh, 20 something miles. To return to his hometown differently than how he left it. Nazareth is not the equivalent of the neighborhoods you and I live in today. Nazareth is, uh, in terms of its sociological makeup, it's not suburbia. Nazareth is much more closer to the hood than it is the cities or or the towns that we live in right now. Nazareth is small time. It's 60 acres big, 500 people living in there. To put that into perspective, Palm Bay is 65,000 acres with 112,000 people. Even more closely, my neighborhood in West Melbourne, you all been there, is only 38 acres. So Nazareth is just double my neighborhood. The point is, is that everyone knows everyone in Nazareth. Everyone knows everyone in Nazareth. This place, everyone remembers everyone in Nazareth. This place is familiar to Jesus, and Jesus is familiar to them. There is no one, there is no one who Jesus will encounter from the moment he crosses its borders that has no idea who he is. And it's not, it's not because of the reports of his gaining popularity. That's not the reason. We'll see what the reasons are. Now, look at verse two. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? The beginning of this verse is familiar to us, right? as it would have been for the disciples at the time. Jesus always goes to the synagogue. This is like our third or fourth time in Mark already that on the Sabbath, Jesus went to the synagogue to teach. This is not abnormal behavior for him, nor is it abnormal for us to hear that he went to the synagogue to teach. And yet the reaction to Jesus' teaching in this moment is incredibly abnormal to us. On the surface, it looks like people are impressed with him, right? Right? On the surface, it looks like the people there, they're impressed with Jesus's ability to communicate the text, with his ability to heal. We like stories like that, right? We like stories of the small town guy coming from nothing, making a name for himself, and then returning to the place he came much larger than he was before to all the acclaim that he's deserved. We like that. But family, that's not what is happening in this moment. The people's response to Jesus teaching the text is met with rhetorical disparaging questions about his ability to teach, his ability to heal, the wisdom he is displaying. What did Jesus say to garner such a response, right? That's probably what we would think next. Well, what did he say? Why they mad at him? I like Luke, Luke's words here again. Luke four seventeen. we just read 16 before, so verse 17, it says, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. So they essentially handed him the scroll with Isaiah's letters in it, right? And Jesus un-scroll, unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Essentially, what Jesus does is he declares who he is through the scriptures to them. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. I'm the Lord, this this text is talking about. I am the anointed one. I'm the Lord, this is talking about. I proclaim the good news to you, the poor. I have come to liberate the captives, to give sight to the blind, to, to free the oppressed, to announce God's favor. All that you're reading in these scrolls is about me. That's what they heard. And they looked at Jesus with shock and awe. Not in a good way. Because they believe they know him. They believe they know him. Their past experience with him through a specific lens has shaped who they believe he is even over time. I'm saying, how, how does this guy have the knowledge? How, do, how, how does he have the wisdom? He's no rabbi. That's what they're saying. He's he's no teacher. He comes back here with students calling him teacher. He doesn't have the education for that. We know he's not qualified. I could just imagine them telling the disciples, where do you think he was before he was with you? He was here with us. He's no teacher. Look at verse three. Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Their reaction intensifies. They say, you're a carpenter, man. You work with your hands. What are you doing reading scrolls? But this time, the, the, the naming of carpenter is important. Because at this time, it meant that Jesus worked with wood and stone. It means he was a builder. If we could just categorize it more broadly. It meant that he was a builder. And builders were men. I mean, carpenters too, if you want to get specific. Probably carpenters less so than just general builders. But they were men of little to no status. They were not important. They didn't have weight in the community. They say, how can you process the scrolls? You're, you're a builder, bro. What are you doing? How can, you, how can you say these things are about you? You're like us. You're nothing. And then they say the most disrespectful thing they can say Isn't he the son of Mary? You violated him. And you would say, Well, what's wrong? What's wrong with naming his mom? Nothing wrong with that. Mary should be beheld. Why does that matter? You have to remember something. We're far removed from this kind of society, not that far removed, but we're far removed from this patriarchal society. That everything you are, everything you can become, everything you can be, your potential is only determined, your status is only determined, your self-worth, your contribution to the community is only determined by the name and status of your father. You are Jesus of Joseph, not Jesus of Mary. So when they say, you're Jesus of Mary... It's not that they're paying homage to the Holy Mary. No, that's not what's at play here. This is actually an insult on multiple levels. Number one, the scholars believe Joseph, Joseph had already died at this point. So to not even refer to him by the name of the man who raised him, to the man who gave him his legal name in this society is incredibly disrespectful saying you're mary's son you're not joseph's kid you're mary's son second this also means and this is this is where it gets really good this also means that the fact of mary's virgin birth is still in question to these people mary's not a perpetual virgin we know now she's had multiple kids right we just heard half of their names they're not paying homage to mary essentially what they're saying is jesus oh you're the fatherless child you you're the Jesus of the woman who had a lover we don't know of who should have been stoned for having a child out of wedlock jesus to them is known for having a scandalous family history and jo- joseph must have gave you his name but that don't mean we believe that isn't he the carpenter the son of that woman aren't here, his brothers and sisters. The mentioning of his siblings is also important. You remember, remember back in chapter 3, right? Jesus' siblings weren't believers. They thought he was crazy. They thought he was, cra- they thought he was literally mentally insane. They wanted to arrest him. They traveled all the way to Capernaum, some 20-something miles to go over there and put their hands on him, to physically remove him from the city so they could bring him home. They thought he was crazy. Now, we know that James later does become a believer. And James becomes head of the church of Israel. And he goes on to write the book of James that we have in our Bible. But he only became a believer after the resurrection. This whole time, he does not believe That his older brother is the son of God. The only believer at this point in Jesus' household is Mary. She's the only one who knows the truth. The people in the synagogue were offended. The Greek here for offended is where we get the word scandal from. They were scandalized. They were embarrassed. They were ashamed at this presentation. Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? He's a carpenter. an illegitimate child, this crazy person that his siblings been telling us about. You're no son of God. Daryl Bach in his book, Jesus According to Scripture, says the Greek here is clear. How can ordinary Jesus be used for God's work? Family, let's take a moment to reflect and consider where we are in this passage. We must ask our question again, who is Jesus to you? Who do you think Jesus is? Are you scandalized by him? Are you embarrassed of him? Offended? Who do you think he is? Are you ashamed of him? What is he to you? Is your relationship with Jesus suffering under the apathy that can only be found in familiarity? Is your passion for him and his work growing dim? Because who he is to you is so familiar, so constant. That your perspective of him has become so trivialized that you have difficulty realizing the fire in your soul for him and his mission. Do you acknowledge his works, but not his commands? Who do you think Jesus is, beloved? Beloved. Verse four, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Jesus replies using an ancient proverb that has been used all throughout their time that he, like the Old Testament prophets before him, is not appreciated in his own home. He's being rejected and dishonored most by those who know him best. That's a word for us this morning. That's a word for us this morning. That's a word for the church at large, the big C church, those outside claiming to know him, claiming to be uh, his, and are out in this world making a mockery of him with their words and their actions because of their unrealized unbelief those who say that they've been captivated by the grace and love of god but are the most angry and wicked people being the least compassionate teaching that empathy is sinful mark has a word for the church this morning are you rejecting jesus churchgoer are you rejecting jesus christian are you rejecting jesus person on the fringe who is he to you In the last two verses, we have our answer, and with this, I'll close. And he can do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Jesus wasn't able to do a mighty work there, not because power had gone out from him. We just saw him tame the ocean and the winds. We just saw him cast out a legion of 5,000 demons. We just saw him heal a woman just by touching him. We saw him raise a little girl from the dead. Jesus is not unable. There's not something magical about Nazareth that is stopping Jesus from being unable. But what is different from being able? I mean, what is different about those moments in Nazareth is belief. Oh, church. It was because of the town's unbelief. It says he was surprised. He was amazed. He was surprised at the depths of their callousness towards him. He was a stumbling block to them. They didn't want him. They thought they didn't need him. But the truth is, family, that there is nothing we need more than Jesus. Family, how gracious is this king that he would even grace his own town with his presence? How gracious, family, is it of God to still pursue the undeserving, to pursue the ones who rejected him by sending his son to reveal himself, his true self, by reading the scriptures before him and revealing himself, gifting them with his presence. And the response is not softened hearts, but hardened hearts. You think this surprised God? And yet, sends his son still. I love Hebrews words here. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world he is the radiance of the glory of god and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs jesus is reading the prophets of Old to them and declaring who he is in the explanation of the text. Jesus says, I am him. I am the one who the scriptures refer to. I am the radiance of the glory of God, the imprint of his nature. I uphold the universe while in my humanity appear before you. Now I am the one who can cleanse your sin with my death, but resurrect sitting now at the right hand of God with a name more excellent than angels. I am here brothers and sisters I am here friends and neighbors I have traveled all this way for you and yet he's rejected except by a few notice family their lack of faith in him halted the work he did there it says at the bottom and he went to the other villages teaching Jesus goes where the belief is Jesus reveals himself to the people and it causes and it caused a great callousness. Right? Family, some of you this morning Jesus is revealing himself to you. And Jesus by the reading of this text is making himself known to you and giving you the holy spirit to respond. Respond with faith, family respond with the faith that he will give, respond with belief that he will give in the power of the gospel, that Christ came just as the scriptures said, that he lived a perfect life, just as the scriptures say, that he died for our sins, just as the scriptures say, that he was buried and raised on the third day, just as the scriptures say, so that by his grace you can enter his kingdom in full relationship with him. Family, if you're a believer in this room and you say, I see the unbelief in my heart. I don't always act like I believe Jesus is God and that his promises are true and that he not only saved me, but has forgiven me of my sins. But and also has provided me with grace to live right now today for his glory and his fame. Then I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters. You don't have to feel guilt and shame for your weaknesses. You don't have to feel guilt and shame for your failures because they've been covered by his blood. You can run into his presence right now where you are and say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me to live in light of the gospel every day, to wake up every morning and say, Jesus is God, Jesus is enough. Stand with me and worship.